And in the spirit of prayer, let's, uh, I want to read a scripture um, from the Psalms, uh, and then I want to pray for Track and Royal Family. Psalm 82 says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, a love that came from you first, from you first to us when we did nothing to deserve it within our own merit. Father, our love so all-encompassing that it provides and sustains a response to reply back to you in love through our faith and obedience. And Lord, we pray for those that are serving with Royal Family Kids Camp and Teen Reach Adventure Camp this summer. We praise you for the many servants who are rising up to the call to give of their time, their money, or in so many other ways. And we thank you for the kids, the kids that you've prepared to participate in these camps this summer. Even if we don't know who they are, you know who they are. And so, Father, we pray that you make it a haven and an experience of joy. Lord, draw them close to you, for you are close at hand, so that they may abide with you. We ask this in your sovereign plan, Father, through the work of your Son and with the power of the Spirit. Bless these endeavors for the advancement of your name and your kingdom forever. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Last week, uh, Chris started a conversation uh, on prayer for us, uh, and he covered, specifically he was wanting to cover last week the prayers from all of Scripture, and then this week he wanted me to highlight the prayers uh, of Jesus, specifically in Scripture. Um, last week he referenced uh, a site that he found that uh, pointed to Dake's annotated reference Bible uh, that was so super helpful in this conversation. Uh, there, uh, Dake cites 222 prayers uh, that are recorded throughout all of Scripture. Of those, 176 are in the New Testament, and 46, I mean, I'm sorry, 176 are in the Old Testament, and 46 are only in the New Testament. And this week, you know, again, Chris just asked me to cover the prayers of Jesus, which in the New Testament, of that smaller number, there are actually only 10. And so there are 10 verbatim recorded words of Jesus that are listed as prayers. And so I thought at first with that assignment that this is, this well, great, that's going to be easy. Um, I mean, simple math here. Uh, he did seven prayers last week out of a total of 212 that he could have chosen from. Uh, so that's about 3%. And so all I have to get through is three prayers of Jesus. Simple math. <laughs> and in fact, halfway through the week, no lie, that was my temptation. I was talking to John Redfern and he was like, well, what do you think you're going to highlight or cover? Uh, and I was like, really, I think it's just going to be three. It's going to be the Lord's prayer he teaches us. It's going to be his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's going to be uh, the prayer that's in John 17 for all the believers. That's three Three out of ten, three percent. We can, we got this step going. But no, actually, it was funny because I looked up the math later in this joke after realizing the conversation. Because then, um, after talking to John, what I realized was there was no way, of course, that Chris could have covered two hundred and twelve. Even if he just read them, we wouldn't have had time to consider them all together. Um, but I only have ten, and I thought, how fun would it be for a Sunday for us to actually read and consider all ten. Uh, prayers that Jesus prays. And so that's going to be my hope this morning is that we're going to be able to get through that. And I think, you know, even as we're considering these prayers, it's going to be a much easier task because most of the prayers are actually from Jesus are a lot shorter uh, prayers to consider. Um, So I actually hope that we have some time not only to consider the very words of Jesus prayed, but then also consider some scripture that points to how Jesus prayed uh, to be able to glean from it. And again, I think we'll hopefully be able to rush through and have time 
you know, kind of like what he did so well last time, making, and my hope this morning is that the emphasis really is on the scripture alone. I think Chris did a fabulous job last week doing that. If you missed it again, go back online and watch it. Um, but really, I think hopefully our encouragement um, will be reading these in entirety, and, and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will, will implant in your heart exactly what he wants to encourage or convict you with as we go through it. To start, though, I am going to start with at least a question that I had. Um, a question that I had for myself as I was even going into this that I hope I know probably many of y'all share, which is really just kind of always that fascinating question of, does Jesus really need to pray? Or why does Jesus seem to need to pray? I mean, he's God after all, right? So why would he need to pray? And it was interesting when I started looking into commentaries uh, to be able to see that and be able to ask myself why, what would the prayers you know, give us an insight to then tell us, again, if he's a sovereign God, who he's in, in control of all things, and he doesn't need anything, why would he choose to pray? Why would he need to pray? Of it, there was three main thoughts that most commentators seem to, to all kind of circle around, or at least mention in some way or fashion or form. First thought was that prayer um, simply was the human connection uh, between God and the divine. This, is, this was the uh, combination of, we know that Jesus was fully God and fully man. The theological term is the hypostatic union. My daughter uh, just learned that for the first time in first grade uh, this past week. But it was the notion that uh, God is both fully man and fully God. He is fully human, yet he is fully divine. And so this thought points to the fact that prayer is this conduit method that points between, again, the human nature of Jesus and the divine nature of God. And I don't want to dismiss it as a thought because, again, a lot of this is so mysterious and I think there is some truth here. Um, but there is a pitfall in this understanding. And the pitfall in this understanding is, um, is simply that Jesus is both of these things, fully human and fully God. And some, if we can take this too far, we may minimize that uh, his divine nature, and we just are pointing to his human nature, needing prayer as, an, as a conduit to the divine. And yet, again, he doesn't need that conduit. He fully has it. But again, it's mysterious. We just can't fall into that mistake. The second one is that prayer is just a uh, method of communication between the Trinity. And again, this certainly would make sense because we see of the three in one aspects uh, of heads of God in one person, we have God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, we see the Son convening with the Father through prayer, communicating. And so we make sense. This makes sense of how those two would fit together. But again, it kind of, again, breaks down in the mysteriousness of it, just in the mysterious nature of the Trinity, because we don't have Jesus praying to the Holy Spirit, um, even though it's not wrong for us to. We don't have the Holy Spirit, any recollection of the Holy Spirit praying to the Father or the Father to the Holy Spirit. And so again, whether it is just a partial picture, it does certainly still have its pitfalls. And then of the three possibilities, I think it is this last one that makes the most sense. And I think it makes the most sense because it relates to us. Because one of the things that we definitely see in scripture is that Jesus uses prayer. One of the means for prayer is that Jesus uses prayer to teach us, to communicate to us, to his followers and to his believers. And again, this is, this is the safest and clearest to understand. Uh, in the book of John, Jesus says within one of his prayer, prayers that we'll read later, I said this on account of the people standing around. Or in the Lord's prayer that we've already sung and we'll read later, Jesus, when asked how to pray, instructs. When you pray, pray like this. There's a notion of, of instruction that Jesus takes the opportunity to prayer. Again, it makes most sense because that one we can relate to because it has to do with us and the humanity that we can share of like, yes, we can learn from the teachings um, that are found in Jesus's prayers. 
But again, this divine side is what we struggle with. If he is God, why would he need to talk to God? If he is perfect, why would he need to ask for anything? So I think the question still remains, did Jesus need to pray? And perhaps I don't necessarily have a full answer for that, but where there is no doubt is it that it is true that Jesus' nature was to pray. Did Jesus need to pray? I don't necessarily know, but certainly I can tell you it was in his nature to pray. Jesus was in a perfect, sinless relationship with the Father, and yet he chose to convene with him through prayer because it was his nature and because he found it valuable to do so. Apparently, this communicates a message of value of prayer. If it was important to Jesus, it should be important to us. And this is the first confession that I will have that Chris and I have shared with you before when concepts of prayer. I certainly do not value prayer the way that my Savior does. I tend to think of it as less valuable. Now, my thoughts on its value does not change its inherent value itself. It's valuable. Jesus shows us this. It's my problem to catch up to those standards. Whenever I think about this conversation of a value, a known value um, versus inherited value, I, I come back to an illustration Chris has actually shared with you in the past and that I've, I learned from him many, many years ago. Um, and it comes from an old show called The Antique Road Show. Um, for those younger ones, this is what I watched when I was sick home from school. But this is a show where people would bring in their, their, their valuable um, antiques. And sometimes they were uh, more valuable than they thought. Sometimes they weren't as valuable as they thought. And that always kind of made it a little awkward. Or sometimes it's kind of right on the nose. But there's several ones that are just kind of where it was apparent that the value that the person, the owner had, was just way off the mark. And the thing was so much more valuable. And one of those was this uh, blanket that this man brought in. Uh, it was a Navajo Indian blanket. And he brought this thing in. And then really when the... Um, presenter started engaging with him and in questioning him about the value, this man did not really know at all. And he was guessing much more on the lower end of thinking maybe it's a couple hundred or a thousand dollars or something like that. And then this, this uh, you know, appraiser gets to go tell him, actually in the uh, blurred out number at the bottom is back in 2001. This is a screenshot from a rerun that's been updated. But in the bottom, he gets to tell him this blanket that he thinks is only worth maybe a thousand dollars is actually worth on a bad day, 350,000 or on a good day, up to half a million. And this guy's just blown away. The shock on it is just blown away. And he says this great line that's in there where he's like, I just, like, it just was folded on my mother's chair. Like, that's how invaluable they perceived it. But just because they perceived it as invaluable, it didn't change the inherent value itself. And you can see the updated numbers here in 2021, 10 years later, that now it's estimated upwards of $2 million. That's quite the throw rug to toss over your mother's chair. And I will confess that this is, again, what I tend to do um, with prayer, is that I just don't hold it as valuable. It's not that it isn't valuable, it's just that I don't consider it as valuable in my life. And so I wanted to start with that confession. And with that confession out of the way, now we can move on to these, all these other prayers of Jesus, and I can tell you how I'm nailing it, how I have it all together. I'm just kidding, that isn't going to be true at all. But again, of, the, of only 10 recorded prayers of Jesus, we do also run into some other um, passages that point to how Jesus prays. And I want to start with those to glean some things. So first, we're going to look at what the Bible says about his prayers. And then second, we'll move into what the Bible actually records of his prayers. One of the first things we'll see and speak about um, and, and a pattern that arises when you start to see how the Bible talks about his pattern of prayer. One of them is that he gets up early to pray. In Mark 1, 35, it starts with, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
Jesus is often depicted as starting his day with prayer. I think, again, this is a picture of valuable. We tend to prioritize first things first. And for Jesus, first things first was to convene with the Father. That was his first task. There's a priority communicated in this. He saw it as that important. Before he even started his day, he went to the Father and asked him what he needed for that day. Another notion that Jesus would do that we've read, we've seen in this verse in Mark and we'll see again is that Jesus would go to secluded places to pray. Again, Luke 5, 16 says, but he would, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Oftentimes this was uh, out in nature. Oftentimes this was up on a mountaintop or a mountainside. Actually, in Matthew 6, this is where we get the command to do likewise, to find a place secluded to pray. And so I think if we came into that question of like, do you have a specific place of where you pray? Or for me, it is specific places that remind me to pray. I need more, not necessarily the place I have to set aside so that I have somewhere to go to pray. I have the place that when I'm in that place, it reminds me to pray. Uh, mine actually started in college um, where right after um, uh, a youth conference that I had gone to where the speaker had shared that he had just successfully gone a year without listening to any music in his car and instead spending all the time in his car praying, that was on a weekend. That next week, my car stereo broke. It's like, okay, Lord, I guess this is it. This is going to be now a habit that I'm going to start to develop of the car for me is a place to pray. It, it is just always a place where I find myself alone and I'm always kind of moving through. And so it is a reminder of, yes, what do I need to be praying for? Now, some of you are probably laughing, especially some of you moms and thinking of, yeah, that's nice to have a car that's quiet and secluded to pray. I got a bunch of munchkins in the back that there's no solitude or quietness here. Um, and the switch, then I started thinking, well, then my second place that reminds me to pray is, is actually when I'm showering. And the shower is when I also pray. But then I filtered it through my wife's lens and also you moms and young kids that Truthfully, that's often not a private place for you either. The bathroom isn't either, and kids are all over the place. And so I know that this uh, illustration breaks down in my personal application. This is probably why I would even highlight what my wife does. Is she, one of her places to pray is actually outside the home, and it's actually here. It's at the prayer garden that's across the lake. Now, or if it was raining in a bad day like this, we also have a prayer room over in the grade school building. She's got to get away to find the seclusion to be able to pray. Um, and that would, I think, just be my encouragement. If you, if you don't have a place that you can go to to pray, I pray you find it. If you um, don't have a place that reminds you of your, your need to pray, I hope you can think about that uh, and find one of those places as Jesus has disciplined himself to find that place. Not only does he have a place of prayer, he also is often described with a posture of prayer. And sometimes he's standing looking up, like in John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and then began to pray. Other times he's face on the ground. And we don't know if this means like hands and knees on the ground. We don't know if this means lying prostrate, like laying down on the ground. Um, it doesn't go that specific, but what it does specifically say is that he's humbled in this downward position. And this is our savior humbling himself before his father. For an example that's encouraging to me, John Redfern on our staff does this so well. Um, he oftentimes in staff meetings or in situations where we're praying, um, takes the opportunity to kneel or even lay down uh, during our time of prayer. And you may be asking, well, Paul, how do you know that? Are you opening your eyes? Are you peeking at John? <laughs> no, John and I are both young, but neither one of us are as young that we have the uh, luxury of getting off the ground with any noise coming out of our bodies <laughs> anymore. So oftentimes our prayers are in the, na in the name of the Father, amen. And then you hear, <laughs> as John's returning to his seat. 
And, and one of the things, we've mentioned Jesus' seclusion, uh, secluded places to go alone and pray, but it's also not just that Jesus prays alone. He, he does take others along with him. Um, we do find Jesus praying in groups. In fact, on Luke 9, in the story of the uh, transfiguration, it actually begins in verse 28 saying, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and then went up the mountain to pray. And so he still goes up the mountain, but this time he's taking people alongside of him. And I do think that there's a notion of prayer partners that are very useful praying together and not just praying alone. Um, there is something about praying with other believers that is powerful. This is why we offer it at the right side of the room and at the end of all of our services. And so for this one, I would say that if you're somebody who just thinks, yeah, yeah, when I think about my prayer life, I really only think about it by myself, then I would encourage you, find some prayer partners. You will be enriched by them praying for you and you'll be enriched by praying for them. Or again, if it's the opposite, if you find yourself, I only pray with people in church service or before meals or things like that, and you need to find more of a private prayer life, then again, I would encourage you to do that. Not only does he have these postures in these places and who he brings along, but Jesus also spends significant time in prayer. Jesus is described several times in the Bible as praying through the night. All night he prays. Three examples, major events that he prays through the night before they start in Luke 6, before the choosing of the disciples. Then in Matthew, we get an account where he prays through the night after feeding the 5,000 before walking out uh, to meet the disciples on the boat. And again, in Matthew 26, which we'll consider later, we see him all night in the garden before he was betrayed. I found this fascinating to think about the concept of Jesus's earthly ministry only lasting three years. And within those three years, we have at least three nights that he spends all night up praying this one hit as a confession even for me. I've been in ministry at this church for 10 years, and so I need to play some catch-up. I certainly haven't done three nights awake. We used to do an illustration for, um, many of y'all know, Chris and I uh, had the privilege of running a discipleship program at a nonprofit camp, Pine Cove, here in town for many, many years. And one of the activities that we would do with the boys is to create a scenario where they would certainly have the time set apart for them to pray longer than they had ever prayed in one setting. Our goal was them to pray everything that they could think to pray or the normal things to pray and have nothing more to pray and still spend time praying. And it was always beautiful how the testimonies of what God would bring to mind afterwards would go. We'd actually put them out in the woods for three hours separated by themselves. For the first hours, they had to do it alone with nothing. For the second hour, we allowed them to have a journal and pen that they could start recording. And for the third hour, we'd give them a, a copy of God's word that they could read either God's prayers or read God's word to be prompted to pray. And it was always amazing for the stories that would come back from them um, as they would testify of what it meant when they spent all the time that they could to pray and then ran out and had more time to go, and the things that the Lord would bring him to their mind were, were pretty amazing. And I can't always, uh, whenever I think about that, I also always think of uh, one kind young man who was very much like me at that age, uh, with a whole lot of ADD going on, um, who at about, uh, it, where we start this whole event, and he walks back up to, the, to us, and he says, um, I'm sorry, guys, like, I, I think y'all might not know where I was, where I was hiding, because y'all didn't bring me my Bible um, at the hour mark. And I was like, yeah, that's because it's been 14 minutes. <laughs> back you go. He had a good story, too, of the night. Jesus spends significant time praying, but it is also interesting to look at who he prays for in that significant time. We'll read later again in John 17 where Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his father. He prays for his disciples, and he prays even so for us. But in Matthew 19, 13 through 15, we have this account that's super interesting. It says this, Then the ch children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
And he laid his hands on them and went away. Jesus loves little children and he prays for them. I think that would be very fitting as an application for us. Are we praying for our children? I don't just mean our children, my children. I mean our children, like the children on the, not on the playground because it's raining. They were out there first service. Uh, The children in the next building next door. Um, The one after that. Are we praying for our children in the church? Are we praying for each other's children? Recently, I was reflecting, and I I told you um, not too long ago, I lost uh, my last living uh, grandparent. And I was reflecting with a friend at the time um, how one of the laments of that that I didn't realize until it was gone was that I lost that generation who every time I met them told me that they were faithfully and daily praying for me. I lost a generation that was daily praying for me. And it began kind of this striking picture. And in this conversation with my friend, we began to ask ourselves, well, how would it be like now? How do we take that information and then go to our parents and say, sorry, guys, like y'all got to step up now. Like, this is your role now. Like, you got to pray now every day for us because I need this and my children need this. And this is now your mantle to carry. And he's like, I don't know how to have that conversation. And I was like, I don't know how to have that conversation. But I figured it out today because my parents and my in-laws watch my sermons. So guys, <laughs> I say it in joke because I do know my parents uh, pray for us. But really what my wife and I said, more importantly, was like, no, this is ours. How do I have the conversation with my siblings? How do we engage our siblings to say, you know what's more important is right now we need to have the discipline actions in our prayer lives so that we can build up those prayer spiritual muscles so one day when our parents are gone, we can step into that role faithfully to pray for our children's children and so on. And I think this is a noble task, obviously pictured and ennobilized by Jesus. Are we faithful to pray for our kids? So with those statements about Jesus's prayer, now we can move into the section of what does the Bible actually tell us the very words that Jesus prayed? It's interesting, many of these are actually very short prayers. In fact, in, um, of these 10 prayers, half of them have less than 20 words. Oftentimes they're very, very short prayers, which again, for those who think, I just don't have the words to pray. Well, Jesus didn't take a lot to use and neither do we. First one we're going to consider the prayer of Jesus, I think, fits in back to the motif of Jesus praying for children. It's actually recorded in Matthew 11. Verse 25 says this, At the time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus thanks God for the childlike faith, not childish faith of his followers, but the childlike faith of true believers. That makes sense why Jesus would be praying for children. It isn't that they should have a selfish understanding of faith, but it is that he's highlighting their pure, their innocent, their willingness to turn to a need for a father. I think this is one of the one of the joys of my job getting to go to the hospital so many times when you have a a new baby and just taking the opportunity to pray over this new life. And one of the things I always want to make sure that I pray for with health and all the transitions in the family and all the different things, I always want to just be faithful to pray and Lord, draw this baby to you soon in faith. May they come to faith early as a child. And there's something beautiful about a childlike faith that they understand in ways that I've forgotten. Moving on with another one of Jesus' prayers, one of his shortest prayers, actually the shortest prayer um, we run into is is Mark chapter 7 in the story uh, that we get where Jesus heals the deaf man. And truthfully, I've never, before preparing for this, I'd never considered this one of the prayers of Jesus. Yet again, it was Dak's commentary that first pointed out to me, that Chris pointed as a resource, and then I found it several other places that was really kind of a cool understanding, opening my eyes to the connection. I, I made a division unnecessarily in this sentence. 
But in this shortest of prayer, we actually only get Jesus uttering two words here in English. Technically, it's only one word in Aramaic. And it says this in Mark chapter 7. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Aphatha, that is, be opened. Now, most of the commentaries are quick to point to this beginning sentence, and he looked up to heaven as the imploring device of, this is an intercessory position. He is praying to God in heaven. And then I think of him then turning and making this transitioning and then sighing and then beginning to now address the man in front of him and then saying, be opened. But no, I think that is an unnecessary division. And this is God, Jesus turning to God, looking up into heaven and then praying the command of healing over him, be opened. And then whatever it is, is your canals or just whatever opened and the man could hear again. I mean, Jesus, again, could have used his own words. Many other places, he does use his own words of healing and his own power. Um, but here, he emphasizes his father's will to heal this man by including this healing word with a prayer to his father. And I know and I confess that, again, this one's not the easiest for me either. I know many of y'all, when you think about the praying for healing, it can be a hard thing, especially when you know people who are really, really sick, especially people without a lot of hope. And if you find yourself this morning praying over and over for a healing that hasn't happened yet, I, I just encourage you, be persistent. I mean, look to Jesus' um, parable of the persistent widow, where he's teaching us again, one of the things, powerful things of prayer is a persistent prayer life. Keep asking for that healing. I remember one of the first times I ran, to, ran into that notion um, face on was um, when I had started ministry here at the church and, and a, a church member, Dr. Dick Hurst, had, um, was in the hospital for pneumonia and I went to visit him and it was supposed to be a pretty routine case and I was supposed to, I really, everybody thought he was going to get better and so I, I knelt down and prayed with him and his wife at his bed and, and prayed very confidently for healing because I thought it was pretty confident. This is again the shortness of my faith, but I thought this was confident. I prayed for healing for him and then mere two days later, we were all shocked when he passed away. And at one of the services, his wife found me and thanked me um, for my prayer because he was, it was answered and he was healed. And I was like, yeah, and I wasn't thinking that because I'm short-sighted in this. Again, this one's not the easiest, but it is, again, important. It's important for us to follow Jesus' model and pray, pray confidently for healing and pray persistently as he instructs us to. Now, the next series of short prayers happen when Jesus actually prays on the cross. We have three times that Jesus utters pray prayers on the cross between the various events that go on there and conversations there. The first one we run into is Luke 23, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Recently, I've been, um, have the privilege to pray with a brother in the community and another one of our friends, um, specifically in, for him to hold to this same truth, to hold to what we'll see in the Lord's Prayer, um, the idea of forgiving those who trespass against him. And he's in a very real situation where it's evident that somebody is trespassing against him. And he would have all legal rights, certainly, and potentially what seems like some moral right to um, certainly not forgive, but in enact some uh, adversarial responses back to get more what is owed him. Um, and yet he wants us to be faithful in praying for him. And I, I admire that greatly. And it's been a joy to do. But now, no, I know next time I see him, I'm going to tell him, hey, man, it's really not that big a deal. At least that guy's suing you. I mean, Jesus prays it for somebody who's about to kill him. Nobody's trying to kill you. It'll all be okay. No, that's not the case. I won't say that. That's not very comforting. But how amazing is that difference? I'm overwhelmed when a man would choose that about earthly things, how much more about when God's choosing about an eternal thing, uh, when it's his very own life and he chooses to forgive those, I, that blows my mind, the greatness of our Savior. 
Again, another one that comes from Scripture actually is in Matthew 27, verse 46. It says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow, what a heart-wrenching prayer from our Savior. I mean, to think about the agony of what he must be experiencing. An entire life and an entire eternity and perfect relationship, perfect community with God because he was sinless. Then for one moment on the cross to take on all of our sins and experience that separation for the first time. In agony, he prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think Chris said this well of last week that there's no situation too great in which God the Father can't handle our emotion, let alone welcome our emotion. Jesus takes his agony and goes before the Father. And so can we have the confidence of taking whatever we're feeling, whether it's agony, whether it's grief, whether it's uncertainty, whether it's fear, whatever emotion we have, there is nothing so great that God does not welcome him, welcome us to have a voice with him and take that emotion to him. And I think of a part of why that he can do this is because Jesus knows he can do that because he still is acknowledging God's will in this thing. Luke 23, the last prayer of Jesus, then Jesus called, calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus entrusted himself to his Father's will. So he knew his Father's will was going to come first. And he knew that he could carry any emotion carried along with that to his Father. Because he knew what his death would accomplish, and he knew it was his father's plan. And similarly, there's a prayer prior to the cross that we have in John 12. Now is my soul troubled? The rhetorical. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Again, they seem more rhetorical. They're real questions. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus knows he's about to go into suffering. And he says a short prayer, acknowledging God's will above his suffering. Perhaps best seen is in Matthew 26, where we get this blown out recording of Jesus' full emotions and requests prior to the cross. Another one of the nights he stays up all night. This is in Matthew 26. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to his disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to them, so you could not watch me with one hour, watch and pray that you may not, may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And Matthew actually goes on in the chapter and says he prays it a third time. He's praying that, Lord, if this doesn't happen to happen to me, that would be great. But above that, your will. Your will be done. This combination of the acknowledgement of God's will, but the real agony and emotional request to remove this burden. This is the model that, this, that our Savior has for us. And at least even though that cup wasn't taken for him, from him and he did die, he was resurrected. And this does remind us of another prayer of Jesus where a foreshadowing resurrection, a foreshadowing event pointing to this resurrection was actually at the resurrection of Lazarus where Jesus has a prayer that's found in John chapter 11. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
Again, this is one of the ones that I made a distinction in, and so many commentators don't separate the, he, the command of resurrection, Lazarus come out from the prayer of Jesus, and thinking of them as one unit makes a whole lot of sense when you read it in the context of what is presented here. He's thanking the Lord that, he, that his father has heard him, and that he always hears him, and in him hearing him, and according to the father's will, he prays the miraculous words, Lazarus, come out. Get up, get out. And how great is it here for us to see um, how Jesus can go and confidently call on the Father and how beautiful it is that Jesus is the very reason that we get to call God Father. The same confidence he knows God always hears him as Father, that same Father is our Father who always hears us. 1 John 5, 14 says it like this, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked him. Not only is it amazing that he will hear us, not only is it amazing that he will hear us as a father, it is more amazing that when we pray in his will, nothing can undo that prayer and it will be fulfilled as he will fulfill his glory in his will. Likewise, Jesus then instructs us um, when we pray, if it's not clear enough from when he prays, he instructs us clearly when we pray, we can call him father. We've sung it already and I've already referenced it, um, but I actually want to start before the Lord's prayer, backing up a little bit um, to the words, the commands, the teachings leading up to that prayer. Starting in verse five of Matthew chapter six, Jesus is teaching and he's saying, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, that your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will you, neither will your forgot, Father forgive your trespasses. Again, there's so much to unpack here. Those first two teachings, we see a solitary place being recommended to us. We also see uh, in alignment with just short, simple, genuine prayers um, being a model offered to us. And then we have this short and sweet and beautiful prayer that we could spend weeks and weeks unpacking. I mean, God's will being the highlight, being done. Eternity in perspective, not short-sightedness. Our need for his provision and our participation in his provision to others. Um, these are all here, but I don't want to detract again from his words with more of mine. Because so far we've covered all the prayers of Jesus except for one, um, which is the last one that um, we're going to consider this morning. And it's actually the longest of all of the ones. This one uh, skews the mean, the average, because all the other ones that we've considered up and now are less than the 50-ish words. Um, now in this one, in John chapter 17, the whole chapter is there where we run into 612 words of Jesus in a long and beautiful prayer. And we're going to see many aspects repeated. 
and we keep running into. We're going to see themes of glory to the Father. We're going to see um, the claim of the, of the Father's will being done. Um, we're going to see how Jesus' only stance on truth is because he knows truth comes from the Father. And so we see this connection of truth and the desperation of truth for the believers. Um, we see emotion, joy, uh, love. We see a lot of emotion being expressed to the Father's um, and then we're going to see Jesus praying again for himself. Um, we're going to see Jesus praying for his disciples. And then at the end, we're going to see how Jesus, even in that, prays for all of us who look upon the disciples' word and continue in faith. And so as we close with this last one, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. And it's going to be a long one, um, but I want to read all the way through the chapter. I want you to think about these themes as we've seen them and the words that the Father has for you. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as, if we, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I had given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these things only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may perf become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you have sent me, 
I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The very words of God. Thanks be to God. Colson's going to lead us now in our time of invitation, and during this time, um, I first want to say that if there's any part of this conversation this morning, or even now in this time, if you stop and you think about the idea of a righteous and holy God, and if there's any doubt that you could stand uh, in right relationship in the way that Jesus just, just described, if there's any hesitation that you couldn't say yes, from now and on into eternity, I'm in good relation, I pray you don't leave today with that worry unsettled. Um, that you ask whoever brought you here, you come forward and ask one of us um, what it is to stand rightly before a righteous God because this is Jesus' very love poured out from us that we've considered. If you have placed your faith in Christ, I ask that during this time, uh, maybe it is that you're singing, maybe it is that you need to pray, maybe you need to gather with somebody at the right side of the room or pray, maybe you need to come forward. Maybe you need to consider a position of praying. Maybe you don't need to stand. Maybe you need to sit. Maybe you need to go to the back and find a place to lay down. Whatever it is, I pray that you just do the diligence to respond to God as he leads. And then this is also the time that if you've completed the welcome home process or met with Lance and you want to make your church membership known, declaring, I need a church to pray with me. I need to not do this alone. If that's your, your opportunity this morning, now's, now's the chance as well. But whatever it is and however you need to reply, um, now's the chance to do so.